let me encourage you now to open your Bibles once more and to turn uh, this time to the book of Isaiah. We will read in just a moment from Isaiah chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. If you have the Black Pew Bible, uh, it is on page 684. Isaiah 1, 18 through 20. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. If you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Truly, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Father, in this passage, your mouth has spoken. And I pray that as we sang, you would speak, O Lord, to us today. Let your truth prevail so that we would not be unbelieving, but believing. And God, even from this Old Testament passage, point us to your Son, who is risen indeed. And we pray in his name. Amen. Just focus again on verse 18. Let me read it to you one more time. Come now. And let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. Now those words were written in the 700s B.C., which poses an interesting question today. Why, on Easter Sunday morning would I be preaching from a passage that was written seven centuries before the events we've gathered to celebrate? Why not preach this morning on the crucifixion of Jesus and on his resurrection, say, from an eyewitness account like the Gospel of Matthew or John or from a book like Luke, which we read a few moments ago? Why go back into the Old Testament 700 years for this Easter Sunday message? I'll give you two reasons why... We're in the Old Testament this morning in the prophecy of Isaiah. First of all, we're going back these 700 years into Isaiah's writings because that's where we as a church have been spending our time for several Sundays now. In recent weeks, we've been looking at various passages in this book of Isaiah and asking the question, what is God like? What character traits make up God's personality and his being? That's an important question to ask, isn't it? On Easter Sunday, we've come to worship the Lord, but who is this Lord that we're coming to worship? Well, the book of Isaiah is filled with these self-descriptions where God says, I am this, I am like that. It's been a helpful study for us, I hope. We've considered God's holiness, we've considered his sovereignty, we've considered his complexity, that he's beyond our comprehension, and so on. All from this one book of Isaiah. And so we come to the same book this morning, again asking the question, what is God like this God we come to worship on Easter Sunday morning. Who is he? What does he say about himself? Well, in this passage, the answer, of course, is that God says about himself, I am merciful. Isn't that what he's saying here? Let us reason together. Though your sins are scarlet, they will be as white as snow. God is merciful. He pardons iniquities. He forgives sins. He washes away the guilty stains from off our hands. And isn't that what we all need to hear on Easter morning and on every other morning? Whether 
you're coming today and you're in church for the first time or the first time in a long time or whether you're here every week, it is good to remember that the God to whom we come is a God who is merciful, a God who forgives sins, a God who therefore allows us to come to him. Come now, he says. So there's no inopportune time, I think, to consider these words, words of power, words of forgiveness. Let us reason together. Though your sins are scarlet, they will be as white as snow. But then there's a second reason why we're backing up seven centuries this morning from that first Easter weekend, and that is because the promises that we read here in Isaiah chapter 1 are really the overflow of what was to happen that first Easter weekend. Jesus died on that Friday afternoon so long ago precisely because, as Isaiah says, our sins are scarlet. Jesus died on that first Good Friday because we have been, to put it in our language, caught red-handed in breaking God's laws. I've broken God's laws, even this week. And so have each one of you, young, old, children, adults, All of us have broken God's laws. We are sinners, just as Isaiah says here in verse 18. And our sin, he says elsewhere in this same book, separates us from God. And yet, because Jesus died for our sins on that Friday, because he absorbed the punishment that our sins deserve, because he rose from the dead on the third day, because of all we've been reading and singing about already this Easter morning, we may be forgiven. We may be cleansed. We may be brought back to God just as Isaiah describes here in verse 18. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. That is true for us. That author is on the table for us this morning because of what Jesus did on Good Friday and on Easter Sunday morning. And it's a wonderful offer, isn't it? A wonderful offer. And it's available precisely because of what happened 2,000 years ago. Because Jesus died and because he rose from the dead, literally bodily rose from the dead, the sin stains may be washed off of our hands. We may be forgiven and granted new friendship with God. Because of what happened that first Easter weekend, the offer of Isaiah 1.18 is available to us this Easter weekend. And so... On this Easter Sunday morning, 2,000 years later, I want you to take God up on his offer. I want to urge you, as Isaiah says here, to consent and obey, to turn to the Lord this morning. And I want to do so by looking at this wonderful offer of mercy in verse 18 from five different angles. Just notice five things about the offer that God gives to us here in Isaiah 1.18. First of all, notice that it's a tender offer. God speaks tenderly here. Come now, he says there at the beginning of verse 18. Come now. Those are tender words. Those are words of encouragement. And that's worth noticing, incidentally, because the people to whom God originally spoke these words deserved anything but God's tenderness. If you just look back into verse 15, you'll say that God says of them, your hands are covered with blood. Their sins, these people, were great And perhaps what we might expect to find then in verse 18 would be God grabbing them up by the scruff of the neck and holding them up and giving them a lecture. We might anticipate 
even if he was eventually going to forgive them of their sins, that he would first give them a series of stern looks and harsh words and good talking tos. But that's not what we find here. There is a place for God to grab us up and give us a stern talking to, isn't there? He has the right to do that, but that's not what we find here. What we find here is this gentle phrase, come now. We would say, come on. What we find in this verse is that when God holds out the offer of forgiveness, it's not a threatening offer, it's a tender offer. This is the voice, if you will, of a father who, when he knows his son has done wrong and when he sees the shame on his son's face, says, come now, son, come here, boy. Come sit on daddy's knee. It's the voice of a mother who sees remorse and tears in her daughter's eyes and says to her, come now, sweetheart, your mama loves you. That's how God speaks to us in this passage. That's how God deals with those who are penitent over their sins, tenderly. Come now, he says. Come sit on your father's lap. I still love you. I want you to come. Does it occur to you when you sin and when you repent that this is God's disposition towards you? Do you picture God when you come to him having to confess your sins with his face stern and his arms folded, saying to you, I don't know. You've come to me how many times this week with this same confession? Or do you picture him as a loving father who says to you, come now. Is your heavenly father stern and slow to forgive or is he tender and easy to be entreated? Does he say you did it again or does he say come now? The God of the Bible is tender and kind and compassionate. He wants you and I to come to him. He wants you and I like a child with a father to climb up on his knee and to have our tears and our sins wiped away. God would not have sent his son 2,000 years ago to die for your sins, would he, unless he wanted you to come to him, unless he wanted to forgive your sins. And so I just urge you off the bat this morning to do just what God says in this passage. Come now, come to him. Do not be afraid to confess your sins, your transgressions, your shortcomings to this tender, forgiving God. He's ready to greet you, not with a kick in the pants, but with an embrace and a kiss. He is a tender, compassionate father to all who receive him. And I urge you this morning to receive him as such, to stop running from him so that you can stay in your sins, but begin to run to him so that he can forgive you of them. Now, if God's tenderness does not completely win you over already, perhaps you'll be convinced to come to him when you see, secondly, that this offer of Isaiah 118 is not only a tender offer, but a reasonable offer. It's a reasonable offer. If the words come now are the language of a father to his beloved children, the next phrase, let us reason together, is the language of the courtroom. Actually, it might be more like the language of negotiation in the judge's chambers. What we hear in this phrase, let us reason together, is, if you will, the prosecutor sitting across the table from the defendant saying something like this. You were caught red-handed. We have all the evidence. You know that you have no case. In fact, if this litigation actually goes to trial, the jury won't have to deliberate over this for even five minutes. 
Everyone knows you're guilty. And you yourself, says the prosecutor, know that you're guilty. So he says, let's reason together. It doesn't have to go as badly as it might. Let's reason together. Let's work out a plea bargain. You'll be far better off if you will confess and reason with me now at this table than if you attempt to argue your innocence out there in that courtroom. That's the language that we're looking at here. Let us reason together. And if you found yourself in such a situation in an actual human courtroom, I hope that you would have the common sense to accept such a deal. It would only make sense, wouldn't it? The prosecutor's offer would be a generous one if you knew you were guilty. Your sentence will be significantly reduced if you would just plead guilty and confess. And if you know that you're guilty, I say that's an exceedingly reasonable offer. And that's precisely the kind of situation in which you and I find ourselves when we stand before the bar of God's justice. All the evidence says that we're guilty. There's no winning the argument. There's no arguing with God and telling him that we haven't sinned. No, there's no avoiding our sins. There's no excusing our sins. And so God offers us a deal, much like the prosecutor in the Hamilton County Courthouse, only with one added twist. That is, when God calls us into his chambers and when he sits across the table from us and says, let us reason together, he does not offer us simply a reduced sentence in exchange for confession. No, no, we're told in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sins, the heavenly prosecutor doesn't simply offer us a reduced sentence. He eliminates the sentence altogether. Because Jesus has already paid our sentence in full on that Friday so long ago, God offers complete Pardon to everyone who comes to him in repentance and faith. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. That is a reasonable offer, is it not? God is not trying to stick it to you. He's not trying to maneuver you or deceive you. When he says, come now and let us reason together, he means what he says. He's making an offer here in Isaiah 118 that surely no one has good reason to refuse. No one who realizes that he is guilty before God, that he has sinned against God, can ever accuse God of driving a hard bargain because he doesn't simply offer a shortened sentence. He doesn't merely offer you the possibility of parole. He doesn't offer here a rehabilitation plan whereby one can get his way out of prison with good behavior. He offers complete pardon to those who repent of their sins and entrust their souls to Jesus. Complete pardon. And I say that as a reasonable offer. Better than reasonable, actually. So reasonable (coughs) is the offer that we would be positively unreasonable if we failed to take God up on it. Have you taken God up on this offer? Or are you still trying to maintain your innocence and convince yourself that everything's actually fine between you and the Lord? That's what's unreasonable. Now, in a human court of law, a criminal may every now and again be able to pull the wool over the jury's eyes, right? We've all heard cases where we think that's probably the situation. There may not always be sufficient evidence to convict a man, even though he and everyone else knows that he's guilty. And most criminals who carry their case all the way to trial hope that it will be so with them. 
They hope not only to avoid punishment, but to be able to walk out of the courthouse with their heads held high, their pride intact, and still be able to claim, I did nothing wrong. They said I was not guilty. Even though they know in their hearts that they are. And as dishonest and despicable as that is, many succeed at doing it. But let's be reasonable. We're not in a human courtroom. We stand with our sins before the judge of all the earth. Can anyone deceive him? Can anyone hope that God won't have enough evidence at the last day to convict us of our sins against him? Can anyone hope that their sins will have gone unnoticed by the Almighty? Surely not. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, we're told in Proverbs 15. Keeping watch on the evil and the good. God sees when you're doing right, but he also sees when you're doing wrong. And he sees when I am as well. He sees you. And he sees me when no one's looking but him. And he has his finger on the pulse of your heart when no one else does. God knows the pride that may be there or the covetousness and greed that may be there. God knows the selfishness that may be in your heart or the lust, the bitterness, the impatience with other people. God sees and God knows. He hears the fights at home. He hears the slander that goes on on the telephone, the disrespect, children towards your parents, the profane language. God knows all of these things. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. And so to think that we can escape God's judgment and maintain our innocence is folly. To think that we can, on a technicality, escape the sentence for our sins makes no sense. And yet it is possible to escape the sentence for your sins. Although not with your head held high and not with your pride unscathed. God this morning calls you into his negotiating room and he makes to you a reasonable offer. One that I think you cannot refuse. Come now and let us reason together. Though your sins are scarlet, I'll reduce your sentence. Is that what he says? No. Though your sins are scarlet, I will grant you the possibility of parole. No, far better than that. Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are scarlet, I will place you in a work release program and you may be able to be free soon. No. What does he say? Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, though all the evidence is against you, though your hands are stained with the evidence, they shall be as white as snow. That is a reasonable offer. And so I just encourage you to be reasonable yourself. Ask yourself, do I really want to try and earn my way into heaven with my do-betters and try-harders? Do I really want to bank on my own ability to do enough or be enough to finally overcome my sins? Am I serious enough about the traditions and the ceremonies which some religious professional always told me would eventually help me to earn heaven? Am I serious enough about those things that some man told me about that I would ignore all these Bible verses that seem to promise the exact opposite, namely that forgiveness is absolutely free? If I pass this offer up, this reasonable offer, then I'm being positively unreasonable. So some of us may need to take God up on his offer this very moment. It's not just that God, he says, let's reason together. Be reasonable. Consider how outrageous it would be for you to have an offer of complete and total forgiveness of sins on the table and for you to walk away and leave it there on the table because you'd prefer to try and get 
to heaven some other way. Let us reason together, says the Lord. This is an offer surely you cannot refuse. Now thirdly, notice that the gospel, this offer in Isaiah 1.18 is an undeserved offer. Jesus died for your sins so that you can go free. Jesus gave his life in place of yours at the bar of God's justice so that you can be pardoned completely. And that is an undeserved offer. Part of what makes God's offer so reasonable, part of what makes it so imprudent if we refuse to take God up on his offer of trusting in Jesus is the fact that the plea God offers us here is so far beyond anything that we could ever, with a straight face, ask God for. God promises to wash our sins as white as snow, to make them as white as wool, and to do so for people who have been caught red-handed, whose sins are scarlet and are red like crimson. Now, would you stand before a judge and say, Judge, all the evidence is against me. I know I'm caught. I know that I have no case, but I'm asking you just to let me walk. Would you say that to a judge with a straight face? No, because you know that's not anywhere close to what you deserve. And yet that is what God offers us. He offers us something far better than anything that we've earned. Though your sins are as scarlet, Though they are red like crimson, I'll let you walk. Now, why does he say scarlet and crimson as the colors to depict our sin? Why does he not say, though your sins are black like soot, though they're brown like the mud in the streets? Why does he say, though your sins are as scarlet, and though they are red like crimson, they will be as white as snow? We might well and accurately use these other colors to describe sin. So why does God use these colors? Well, we saw a hint Remember in verse 15, the people to whom Isaiah originally spoke these words, we are told, had blood on their hands. Their hands were covered with blood. Now, that didn't literally mean that everybody to whom Isaiah spoke to was a murderer. Rather, God could say that their hands were covered with blood because in his courtroom, all sin is just as grievous, just as sinful as murder. In God's courtroom, all sins brings upon our heads a capital sentence. Remember that when you are tempted to sin and swallow hard. The wages of sin, all sin, is death, according to Romans 6.23. The wages of sin, all sin, even the sin that you may think is a small sin, is the forfeiting of your own life blood. That's why he says your sins are scarlet. And they are red like crimson. We all deserve eternal judgment for our sins. That's not what we like to hear. That's not what I like to preach. But that's what the Bible says, isn't it? My sins against God necessitate that I should be judged forever for them. Whether my sin is murder or slander. Whether your sin is prostitution or disobedience to your parents. Fornication or gossip. Drunkenness or murmuring, stealing or lying, failing to thank God for your food. There are no little sins. There are no sins, according to the Bible, that are not worthy of death. And every last one of us, myself included, therefore has the blood of sin on our hands. We're totally undeserving of this offer that God makes to us in Isaiah 1.18. But why do I dwell on that dismal reality? On Easter Sunday morning, why would I spend time talking about how guilty and undeserving we are? 
Well, not to be morbid, not to be negative or browbeating, not even for a moment do I want to be that. I emphasize these things because a sober consideration of the deadly seriousness of sin, far from being morose or self-defeating, is actually a great help to us if we understand Isaiah 118. It's not a bad thing for us to dwell from time to time on just how undeserving we are of God's favor and his goodness if we understand Isaiah 118. Because when we understand how sinful we are, God's mercy is all the more amazing, isn't it? Or to put it in the language of Isaiah 118, when you realize that your sins really are as scarlet, when you realize that you really have been caught red-handed, that there's no escaping the fact that you've sinned against God, then you appreciate the promise of snow-white forgiveness all the more, don't you? If you don't realize that your hands are dirty, then for someone to offer you hand sanitizer, no big deal. Thanks, that's great. I don't know if I need it right now. But if you've just come from the bathroom... And in the, the muck and the mire at the side of the interstate on your trip, you know those places? The hand sanitizer is very good, isn't it? Well, when you realize the muck and the mire that you have walked through in your own sins, then to have the promise of forgiveness is actually quite good. The point this morning is not to make you feel bad, but simply to open your eyes to what is on your hands. So that you will say to yourself, this is a reasonable, this is a wonderful offer. So don't assume that even once you receive God's forgiveness, Christians, that now you should push all the thoughts of your guiltiness as far away from your mind as possible. So long as you're looking at your sin in the light of God's mercy to you, so long as you see the stains on your hands in contrast with the whiteness of the snow, it's actually quite a good thing to realize just how messed up your life really may be and just how red the stains on your hands really are. God's offer of forgiveness and grace is an undeserved offer, which makes it all the more lovely and miraculous and reasonable. Indeed, it's the very fact that God has treated us far better than we deserve that makes the gospel offer, fourthly, an almost unbelievable offer. It's a tender offer, it's a reasonable offer, it's an undeserved offer, and because of those things, it is an almost unbelievable offer. Can it really be that though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow? Can God really make you that clean? Is that really what he's promising to do for us? Yes. I say again, that's almost unbelievable. Complete, absolute, total, unstained, white as snow forgiveness. Have you ever stopped in the dead of winter and simply admired the exceeding whiteness of the whiteness of the snow? There's almost nothing in the world as purely white as freshly fallen snow, is there? In fact, almost everything else that we call white when it is placed next to a bank of pristine, dazzling January snow, actually appears to be one of the many shades of off-white. Look closely even today as you drive down Ridge Avenue on your way home, and you'll discover that even the houses that we say are white aren't really quite white when we think about the snow. I've given you this illustration before, but several years ago, Keith and Nick painted this ceiling with Home Depot's ceiling white paint. 
But if I were to take a snowball and throw it against the ceiling, you'd see very clearly that ceiling white is not actually white, not compared to snow. And yet God does not promise in this passage to make our sins as white as the ceiling or as white as the houses on Ridge Avenue. He doesn't promise to wash your sins almost white, but to wash them absolutely dazzlingly, totally snow white. In other words, he doesn't promise to mostly clean you up. He doesn't say that he will forgive 99.99% of your sins in Christ, but he says that all of them will be wiped away. Every last tincture of bloody red or muddy brown or sooty black is bleached away from your hands if you're in Christ Jesus. Even the lighter shades of gray, the sins that don't seem so obvious to us, but that if we could lay them against the snow-white example of Jesus, would actually appear quite dingy. Even those sins are completely cleansed away by the blood of Jesus. When God looks at those who believe in his Son, he sees them wrapped in snow-white garments, garments that only Jesus himself deserves to wear. When God looks at you, if you are trusting in Christ, He sees you absolutely, completely, totally, unstainedly forgiven of every spot and every hue of sin. And I say to you, that is nearly unbelievable. In your mind's eye, just for a moment, transport yourself back three months or so into the dead of winter. Set yourself down on your front lawn on one of those only two or three days where we receive snow. But set yourself down on your front lawn and just in your mind's eye gaze for a few seconds at the exceeding whiteness of the snow. And in that snow, see a gleaming portrait of the forgiveness that God offers you in the good news of his son. God has not promised to scrub you most of the way clean. He has not left you to remove the final few spots yourselves. He has not handed you garments that are almost white. No, no. He's promised that in Jesus your sins, though they are scarlet right now, will be as white as snow. Full forgiveness here and now. An absolutely sinless, holy existence forever when you reach heaven. Can God really do that? It's possible for God to forgive all your sin and to keep forgiving it week after week and year after year when you like me find yourself continuing to drift back into the same mud holes can God forgive you completely fully even after all that you've done yes yes that's what he says here and the reason as I began by telling you is because of what happened 2,000 years ago that very first Easter weekend because Jesus died for your sins Though your sins are as scarlet, though your hands are covered in blood, they shall be white as snow. How? Because though Christ's character was white as snow, God covered him with the scarlet of his own blood. That's the main message of the Bible. That's the message of Easter. That's the message of this passage. But that's the message of the whole Bible. You and I, because of the sin stains on our hands and lips and hearts and imaginations, deserve death the wages of sin is death we are the ones in other words who ought to have been put there on that cross and yet Jesus went there and spilled his scarlet blood on our behalf he died the death that our sins deserve at the bar of God's justice 
Though his hands and garments were white like wool, though he knew no sin, 2 Corinthians 5, God made him to be sin on our behalf. God laid our blood guiltiness on his son, and he spilled his son's blood on our behalf. Though his hands and life and character were as white as snow, God made them as scarlet. And because he did, though your sins are as scarlet, God promises that you will be as white as snow. So there are two factors, really, that make this offer almost unbelievable. First is the fact that God would really forgive all sins and wash them completely away. And the second unbelievable thing is that he would do so at the cost of the blood of his own dear son. I would say, in fact, that the second is even more unbelievable and astounding than the first. God gave it his only son for a sinner like me? You don't know where I've been. You don't know what I've done. You don't know the things that I've thought and the thoughts that go through my mind. Even now, you don't know my sins. But if I look at the Son of God hanging on the cross, I can say to you, God gave up his son for a sinner like me? How can this be? God sent his son to be mocked and beaten and spat upon for you? God allowed soldiers to flay his back open with a metal tip whip and to nail him to a cross and to leave him hanging there for all those lonely hours gasping and gurgling for every breath until he died God did that for us it almost defies belief does it not but this is how much God loves us that he would forsake his own son that he would send his own son to our death sentence all so that our filthy hands might be wiped as clean as the winter snow. If you've never yet received that offer of forgiveness, if you've never yet come and bowed your knee to this Jesus and said, I will entrust my soul to you forever, do it today. It's unbelievable almost, isn't it? That he, as we sometimes sing, would give his only son to make a wretch his treasure, but he did it. Bow your knee to him today. Entrust your life to him today. And allow me to make one last plea to you that will encourage you to do that, this time specifically looking at verses 19 and 20. God's offer of forgiveness is tender, it is reasonable, it is undeserved, and it's almost unbelievable. And finally, God's offer of forgiveness to us today is a final offer. A final offer. If you consent and obey, verses 19 and 20, you will eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Now to put that in our New Testament way of speaking, what God is saying here is, if you will do what I'm asking you to do, if you will accept the offer that I'm giving you, if you will accept the plea and confess your sins and repent of them and trust in my Son, if you'll do what I tell you to do, and all will be well. Consent. Bow your knee to Jesus and obey. But, he says, if you refuse and rebel, you will die in your sin. It's a final offer. And here's the point. After holding out to us the offer of utter and absolute forgiveness and giving up his own son to die to make that forgiveness possible, God this morning leaves us with only two options. Just two. Either A, we repent 
and trust in Christ, or B, we perish in our sins. There's no middle route. There's no plan C. All roads, the Bible says, do not lead to heaven. We're not given a choice between a Jesus road that leads to heaven and also a good works religious road that will land us in the same spot because we've always gone to services. There's not a road that is lined with religious ritual and merit and ceremony that leads to eternal life. There's not a Muslim or Buddhist or universal road to paradise. But any Muslim or Buddhist or universalist or Jew or Gentile or black or white or atheist may come and walk on this one road. If you consent and obey God's plan, salvation through faith in Jesus alone, you will live. But if you refuse and rebel, you will perish. So the offer that God's been holding out to you this morning, and to some of you week after week, is his final offer. Today's the day for you to decide. Today is the day for you to consent and obey. And if you consent and obey, if you will bow your knee to Jesus and entrust your soul to Jesus and repent of your sins before this one who died for them, though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Truly, the mouth of the Lord has spoken.